The Bible is one book with one author, the Holy Spirit, um, but it's composed of 66 different books. And uh, each book is unique. And as you read through the Bible, you'll find that there are a number of different genres of, 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 of literature within the Bible. You have, a, you have a, a, a book of the Bible like Genesis or like Matthew that is telling a historical narrative. You have, uh, you have a book like Romans or 1 Corinthians, which is a, which is a letter, not a, not a narrative, but, but, but a letter from one person writing to another group of people. You have parts of the book of Leviticus uh, and, and the book of Exodus, which are law codes that are being laid out for the people of God. And of course, apocalyptic literature in the book of Revelation. And poetry like we have in the book of Psalms. We are putting our Genesis series, where we've been going through uh, for the last year, verse by verse and line by line, we're putting that series on hold to jump back into a series that we've been doing for the last 11 years. Uh, uh, 11 years ago, on July the 1st, 2012, we started with Psalm 1. And we preach Psalm 1 verse by verse and line by line. And then every summer since then, we've, we've taken a look at five or six or seven psalms uh, in a row. And, and we now find ourselves at Psalm 61. But it's important for us, though, because the, the genre of literature that we've been reading up until this point has been historical narrative, telling what happened in the life of Adam and then in Noah and then in Abraham. But we're, we're shifting gears here. This is a different genre. The best uh, description that I've heard to describe w- what makes each genre unique is the analogy of fruit. So think about a, a strawberry or an apple or grapes or a pineapple. They all fit within the category of fruit. We're not going to argue about whether or not it's fruit or not. But the way that you consume a grape in one bite is different from how you consume an apple. You want to leave the core out when you're eating an apple, right? So you don't eat a grape in the same way that you eat an apple. Furthermore, you, 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 don't, eat a, you don't eat a banana the way that you eat an apple. You, can't, you can bite right into an apple, but a banana, you got to peel it. A pineapple, that's a whole other story, right? You're going to hurt yourself if you try to eat a pineapple like you eat other fruit. And so each book of the Bible is like a different type of fruit. Some parts of the Bible, you can just pop in your mouth and immediately apply it to your life. You can immediately metabolize what God is giving to you. The nutrition is easily accessible. For for other parts of the Bible... It it requires some preparation. It requires some skill in being able to carve it or peel it in such a way so that you can enjoy it. And so when when Paul was reading earlier uh, in the service from Psalm 61, and it says that God is a rock, we got to think about the genre. It's not saying that God is an inanimate object that, that we could pick up and throw or blast with dynamite. God is not an actual rock. When it says, let me dwell in your tent, God doesn't actually live in a tent. And and especially when it says that God can shelter us under the shadow of his wings, God does not have wings. God is not a bird. 
This is the, the genre of literature that we are looking to. And the Psalms that I'll be teaching through this summer, at least for the next few weeks, are, are Psalms of, of desperation. Psalms where David sounds like he's ready to quit. It's, it says in verse 2 of Psalm 61 that, that, that his heart is faint. He's got almost nothing left in the tank. He's ready just to, just to, to quit. He's exhausted. He's alone. He's overwhelmed. And Psalm 61 and Psalm 62 and Psalm 63 is this just special little collection of psalms that have meant a lot to me uh, in my Christian walk and mean a lot to me right now personally where David is kind of crying out to God where he just feels like he has nothing left. He just wants to quit. Do, do, you, ever just wanna, do you ever just wanna walk away? Do you ever just wanna quit? Do you ever just sort of look at what is happening in terms of the moral decline in our society and in our culture and in, in entertainment and in politics and education and you just, you scroll through your newsfeed and you just feel like, you know what, just forget it. The pressure to conform is so relentless and you've been swimming upstream for so long, you just wanna say, you know what, I'm just gonna float along for a little while and let the tide of the culture take me away. Or maybe, you know what, I'll just sink underneath and drown. I don't, I don't know if I can keep doing this. Or maybe you're, you're, you're still wrestling with some of the, the, the high-profile failures of prominent Christian leaders. And you're, you're thinking, man, I, mean, I used to listen to this person every day. I used to hang on their every word. I read all of their books underlined. I went to all of their conferences and I thought that they were so filled with the spirit. And then I find out that there was all of this flesh and all of this sin happening behind closed doors. And maybe you're jaded and discouraged and you're thinking, you know what? Maybe all Christian leaders are like that. You know what? Maybe I'm like that too. You know what? I just feel like quitting. Maybe that's how you feel. Maybe you've had your heart broken just one too many times. Maybe by someone who you thought was going to be your future husband or wife. Maybe it was your husband or wife who broke your heart. Maybe it's your children or a close friend who betrayed you, who wasn't there when you wanted them to be there. And you're just thinking, you know what? I'm just done with going deep with people. I'm just quitting this whole relationship thing. I'm just going to, I'm just, I'm just quitting. I'm just done. Or maybe your heart is faint. Maybe you're overwhelmed because you just feel like you're continually fighting a losing battle against sin in the flesh in your own life. And you're discouraged by the lack of progress that you're seeing in, in your own sanctification and trying to live the holy life that God has given to you. You're not really concerned about the failures of other people. It's your own failure. That just, you, you just wonder, Lord, I don't know if I can keep doing this. Well, if that's how you feel, th th this psalm is for you. The, the title for today's message is this, Lead Me to the Rock That is Higher Than I. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. I'm going to pray for us that God would, would help us and speak to us right now. 
And so, Heavenly Father, this is your word. And so we invite you, O Lord, to speak to us, God. We we ask that by the power of the Holy Spirit, God, that you would fill me and fill my brothers and sisters with your spirit so that we would be able to rightly interpret and understand and apply what your word is saying. Lord, we can't quit. There's too much at stake. And so, Lord, I I pray that you would fill us with courage, that you would fill us with strength, that you would use the raw honesty of this passage to speak to us and to comfort us and to strengthen us, Lord. We pray that you would do what only you can do, God. Apart from you, this is just some lecture. But God, we want this to be a message from you. We want your voice to speak loud and clear. I pray especially, Lord, for those who feel how I so often feel, just ready, ready to quit, who feel discouraged, who feel exhausted. Lord, I I, I pray that you would help us, Lord, to keep going and to cry out to you in prayer, Lord, so that we would be able to sing your praise. God, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The big idea for today's message uh, is, I, I normally don't share big ideas. This is sort of the, the thesis of the, of the sermon. I, I normally don't share these, but as we were meeting together as a teaching team, Pastor Chris put it into such uh, uh, crystal clear words. I just want to share it with you. The big idea is this, when I feel like quitting, remember that those who are crying out in prayer will soon be singing out in praise. And Pastor Chris got that by looking at verse 1 where it says, hear my cry, O God, listen to my prayer. And then in, in verse 8 it says, so will I ever sing your praise. Those who are crying out in prayer will soon be singing out in praise. So that this is what we're supposed to do when we, when we feel like quitting is we're supposed to cry out in prayer. And this cry, this prayer that David prays really takes us to three places or three major metaphors. This will form the structure of the psalm. He, he, he prays to, to, for God to be his tower. And then he prays that he would dwell in God's tent. And then he prays before God's throne. So verses 1 to 3 is sort of a, a military analogy, a rock, a refuge, a tower. And then a more intimate relational metaphor of the tent and then the the bird's wings. And then lastly, the king and his reign before the throne of God in verses 6 to 8. So we begin with verses 1 to 3. Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against The enemy. So before the tower, David prays this Lord, I need you. I need to be rescued by you. I need to be rescued by you. He says in verse 1 Hear my cry, O God, and listen to my prayer. Now, sometimes when we try to eat the fruit of poetry, according to the ways that we would eat the fruit of a letter or historical narrative, we, we sometimes zero in on these words in verse 1 and say, what does it mean for God to hear our prayer at the beginning of verse 1? And how is it different from the word listen at the end of verse 1? 
And what's the difference between crying out versus praying? How are those words different from one another? You're kind of missing the point. It's a poem. The way Hebrew poetry works is Hebrew poetry doesn't rhyme. We know what the different lines of a poem are in English because they often rhyme. But Hebrew poetry didn't rhyme. The, the, the main building block of Hebrew poetry is parallelism. That the poet writes a line and then right below it, there's another line that is parallel to that line. And, and what, the, what the poet often does is he just reinforces what he had just said with greater intensity. So we don't need to worry about the difference between crying out or praying or God hearing or God listening. The idea is this is what he's trying to get across, that he wants God to hear him. And then he says in verse 2, from the end of the earth I call to you. Now remember, this is a poem. David is not using a GPS to give his exact coordinates, okay? He's not standing at some road sign where the the road comes to an end and there's a cliff and a waterfall that says this is the end of the earth. He's not describing his geographical location. He's describing how he feels. He feels far from God. He feels far away. He feels like he's at the end of the earth. Listen, here's the truth. You are never too far for God to hear you. If we were to go out into the parking lot after church, and if I were to be standing beside you when you called my name, I'd for sure be able to hear you. If I were to go out into the middle of the parking lot and you were still to call Ted, I'd still be able to hear you. If I were to go up onto that hill by the pond at the edge of our property and you called Ted, I'd still probably be able to hear you. If I went out onto 10th line and kind of walked halfway down to Argentia, and if you really screamed, Dad, I'd still probably be able to hear you. But if I got to Argentia, or Derry, or Dundas, or Lakeshore, it becomes just absurd, right? There's no point in calling my name because I'm not going to be able to hear you. But with God, it doesn't matter how far away you feel from him. It doesn't matter how far you've wandered from him. It doesn't matter how long it's been since you last called out to him that God can hear you crystal clear every time. God is not like us. You see, we have selective hearing. When my kids are upstairs and I'm down in the kitchen and and Lindsay and I shout out something related to emptying the dishwasher or folding their laundry. They, for some reason, can't hear that. But if we're down in the basement and and the crinkle of a chip bag starts to open, they come thundering down the steps. You see, our our hearing as humans, it's really selective. Not so with God. There's no distance that limits him from hearing us. He always, always hears, no matter how, even from the ends of the earth. Don't think that you're too far away. It may have been weeks or months or even years since you prayed to God, since you opened his word. He is ready to listen right here, right now. Not only is David far away, but his heart is faint in verse 2. 
My heart is faint. The King James translates it, I'm overwhelmed. He has nothing left. He's so exhausted, so filled with despair. He's feeling so weak, so alone, so anxious, so stressed that his heart... So it's not that he's too far away. It's that he, he can barely even put the words together to share with God how he is doing. When you can... When you're too far away, God can hear you. When you can barely speak, God can hear you. And then I love his request in verse 2. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. We live in a culture and in a society that says there's nothing higher than us. There is no rock higher. There's nothing higher than I. There's nothing higher than human beings. We're it. And it's all up to us. And that is a, that's a terrible way to live, to think that this is all there is. And the wisdom of human beings is all we can rely on. That's a scary thought, but that's how most of our world lives. Thinking that there is nothing higher and nothing higher than I. We, and our culture has morphed such that not only do we trust only in human beings, but we have gotten to the point where human beings only trust in themselves and their own perception of reality. And that there is nothing higher than the individual person and what they happen to think about themselves and their identity. But the psalmist here, no, humbly recognizes that there is a higher power. There is a rock that is strong and that is higher than he is in his own wisdom or understanding. It's humbling to admit that there is a rock that is higher than us, that there is a God who is stronger than us, who is smarter than us, who is superior to us in every way, that we are the creatures and that he is the creator, that we are the foolish ones and he is the wise. It's doubly humbling. It's one thing to recognize that there is a higher rock. It's another thing to admit what the psalmist admits. I need to be led. Lead me to the rock. I can't get there on my own. There are plenty of religions that say, yeah, there's a higher power, and here's how to climb up to get to him. You got to follow these rules, you got to read these books, you got to do these good deeds, and then you'll reach the summit. You'll be able to get to the rock. No, 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 that's not the way the Bible works. That's not the way Psalm 61 works. Psalm 61 has the humility to recognize that there's a rock that's higher than I, and that I can't get there on my own. I need to be led. I am a lost sheep who needs a shepherd. I will not get to that rock unless someone guides me. That's humility. We need that kind of humility in our parenting. We need that kind of humility in our finances. We need that, that, that kind of humility in our evangelism. Not just thinking, yeah, I got this figured out. But that we need God to lead us. We need that kind of humility even in our own study of the scriptures. Unless the spirit leads us into truth, unless he helps us in understanding what God's word says, we're not going to get to that rock that is higher than us. It's humbling to recognize. Then in verse 3, he gives the rationale or the reasoning. Why is he crying out like this? Verse 3 begins with the word for, which means because. Here's the reason why. I'm crying out to God like this. For you, O God, I'm sorry, for you have been my refuge in verse 3. A strong tower against the enemy. 
Now, there isn't a huge difference between a refuge or a strong tower. They're both safe places where someone can run to for protection. It's parallelism. We don't need to spend a lot of time worrying about what's a refuge and how's that different from a strong tower. It's, he's saying the same thing, just making it more intense. That we can run to God for protection. And he's remembering in the past Notice how verse 3 is in the past tense. You have been my refuge, a strong tower against God. You've come through for me before. We need to have long memories as Christians. We, we, need to, we need to continually recount the different times where God has come through for us and provided for us and protected us because it's those past memories that give us the strength and the encouragement to cry out when our heart is faint. Remember those previous times where God has strengthened our hearts and get up on that high rock, get high above in that strong tower. You see, when we're in a tower or when we're on that high rock, on that high ground, not only are we out of reach from the enemy's attack, which is very important in a battle, but it also gives us a perspective to see how the enemy is actually attacking us. It allows us to see the whole, we, we don't just see the soldiers who are charging right at us while we're on the ground. We get up above and we see the big picture. That's what we so often need, is to see the big picture. Not just to focus on a couple of trees, but to be able to see the entire forest in front of us. We can see what our options are. We can see the best strategic way to attack the enemy that is coming after us by getting up in that strong tower, that rock, that refuge. Listen, loved ones, Jesus is that rock for us. Remember, he, he, told, he told parables like, like, build your house on the what? On the, on the rock, not on the sand. If you want stability, if you want security, build your house on the rock, when, when Jesus said, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered rightly, he said, you're the Christ. What did Jesus say next? He said, on this rock, on the reality that I'm the Christ, on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell, this is battle language, will not prevail. If you want to win the battle, you got to be on the rock that is higher than us, that is the Christ. And then when the Pharisees and the Sadducees were relentlessly attacking Jesus, Jesus said in, in, in Matthew 21, the stone or the rock that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, as we sang about today. Jesus is that rock for us. But he didn't just come to save us. He didn't just come to protect us or to rescue us. The psalmist begins with this desperate cry for rescue at the tower, but then the metaphor shifts when he starts talking about the tent. Here's what he's asking at the tent. He's saying, Lord, I, I need to be in relationship with you. God is, is not just sort of the, the, the cosmic savior who impersonally chooses to rescue us from danger. No, God wants to relate to us. And those who truly follow him want more than just a rescue from God. They want to live in relationship with God. Verse 4 moves from the tower to the tent. Verse 4, let me dwell in your tent forever. 
Now it's true that in David's time, God did have a tent called the tabernacle where people would worship him and, and praise him. And it was kind of like a dwelling place for God. But the, the language here is the language of hospitality. It's the language of a weary traveler being brought into the tent of someone who was choosing to welcome them into their home and show hospitality. Relationship. Whether it's a, a long-lost relative who journeyed so long to, to visit or whether it's a stranger who's being welcomed in, it's the idea of come into my tent, sit down for a meal. We are going to be engaged in relationship with one another. God is not an impersonal God. He is a personal God who wants to relate to us and we should want to relate to him. And notice how long he wants this sojourning in his God's tent to go on. Verse 4, forever. Things begin to change in this psalm as he's up on the tower, up on the high rock, and he sees with a bit of perspective, you notice that he starts using words like forever in verse 4 and in verse 7. Words like all generations in verse 6. Words like day after day in verse 8. When Satan attacks us, he wants us only to think about this moment or this time or this day, right now. He only wants us to think about right now. How, how is what I'm going to do right now going to make me feel good? That, that's how the enemy wants to attack us. But when we flee to the rock that's higher than I, when we run to the tower, when we dwell in God's tent, we lift up our eyes and we start to think about, what about tomorrow? What about the next five or ten years? How will the decisions I'm making now influence next generation? How will it affect my soul in all of eternity? We need that kind of perspective. Then the metaphors switch again to get even more intimate. Not just a, a weary traveler being welcomed into a tent and invited to a meal, but, but now here in, at the end of verse 4, let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. This, this is the idea of a mother hen with her chicks. A, a, a bird lovingly protecting her children. Again, Jesus is the rock. Jesus also associates himself with this very image in Psalm 61. Jesus says in Matthew 23, he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? He says, and you were not willing. Are you willing to admit that you're weak and vulnerable like a tiny baby bird? And are you willing to come under the wings of God for shelter? Or are you content to be out on your own. Jesus said that there were people in his time who were not willing. Are you willing? Jesus also came and dwelt among us like, like that, that tent language in John chapter 1. Now at the end of verse 4, over to the side, kind of justified on the right, is the word Selah. 
Selah has not been translated because language experts aren't positive how to translate it. And so lots of words in the, uh, in the Bible have been transliterated, which means just replacing the Hebrew words or the Greek words, the letters, with, with English letters. So a word like amen, which just means yes, that's been transliterated. Or a word like hallelujah, which means praise the Lord, it's been transliterated, not translated. Selah is like that. The only difference is, is that Selah, we actually don't know for sure what Selah means. But it shows up all over the Psalms. The best guess is that Selah sounds like the word for lift up. And so it seems like there's a, something that the musicians, the instrumentalists are supposed to do here. Maybe like, you know, you're reading uh, music and you're playing along and then it says to rest. You know, you, lift, you stop pressing the keys. You lift up your hands from the keys. You, you rest. There's a pause. There's some sort of change. Sometimes Selah's signal like the paragraph markings between uh, the verses. This Selah just seems kind of thrown in there. I think it's thrown in there because I think the, the writer wants us to think about the idea that we are weak and helpless and that we can't make it on our own and yet God has chosen to shelter us under our wings, under his wings, and that we're just supposed to rest there for a minute, just to pause and reflect on the fact that God loves us and that we are his children and like a mother hen loves her chicks, God the Father loves his children. And to just rest there in his presence. Selah. Following on the family metaphor of the hen with her chicks, verse 5 says, For you, O God, have heard my vows. I've made some promises to you, God. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. What is a heritage? A heritage is an inheritance. Because we've been welcomed into the family of God the way that a mother hen welcomes her chicks because we've been adopted into God the Father's family through his son Jesus Christ. We have an inheritance. David knew that he had an inheritance of those who fear his name, the inheritance that belonged to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob as we've been learning about in the book of Genesis. David knew that that heritage belonged to him, not simply by biology, not simply by blood. It says the inheritance or the heritage of those who fear your name. This is our inheritance because we belong to the family of God. So we go from the tower, I need to be rescued by you, to the tent, I need to be in relationship with you, to thirdly, the throne, I need you to reign over me. I need you to reign over me. Verse 6 says, Pro prolong the life of the king. May his years endure to all generations. David seems to be praying about himself in the third person here. Or this is someone writing about David. The introductory notes say it's a psalm of David. So it doesn't necessarily mean that David wrote it, although it sounds like his other writings. Prolong the life of the king. That sounds like normal language. You know, long live the king, long live the queen. We even say that today. 
But then he kind of jumps the shark a little bit. He seems to take it a little bit too far. Not just like live long. Like, and In verse 6 he says, may his years endure to all generations. That's, that's a lot more than just long live the king. May he be enthroned in verse, in verse 7 forever before God. Appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to, to watch over him. David's praying for something bigger than himself and his own reign, something bigger than his own dynasty. What David is doing here is what we need to do when our heart is ready to give up, when we feel overwhelmed, when our heart is faint. David is praying the promises of God. What we need to do is search the scriptures for promises for his people and to pray those. This was a specific promise that was given to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. God said, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, when David dies, he says, I will raise up your offspring after you who, who shall come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever. Before me, your throne shall be established forever. So David had this promise that one of his descendants was going to sit on his throne forever. The first candidate was Solomon. And the way Solomon started with building the temple and, and ruling with so much wisdom, it just seemed like this is the guy. Let's have this guy reign forever. But then he started enslaving his own people and sleeping with multiple wives and worshiping other gods. And it's like, uh-uh, we, we can't have this guy reign forever. And then there's all of these other ups and downs. There's, there's, there's kings like Josiah. Oh, we'd love to have that guy reign forever. Kings like Hezekiah, sure, Jehoshaphat. Let's have these guys reign forever. But even the guys who were really good were like, nah, I don't know if we could have him forever. Then there were other kings like, like Manasseh who were like, we don't want this guy. If his reign could end now, like yesterday is too soon. We don't want him reigning forever. So the history of David's offspring is kind of going up and down and up and down. Until there's this really wicked king named Ahaz. He's an offspring of, Ab of, an offspring of Abraham and an offspring of David. He's sitting on David's throne. And he's a terrible king. He instituted child sacrifice in the worship of other gods. He sacrificed his own baby child. And Isaiah comes to him in Isaiah chapter 9. This man who had slaughtered his own son. And Isaiah makes this promise saying, for unto us... A child is born. I know it's July. We're a long way from Christmas, but. For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given. And it reiterates the promise that was made to David generations earlier in 2 Samuel 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom. To establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. This is the promise that David is praying, that there would indeed be an offspring who would do righteousness and justice. Not just some of the time like, like Solomon or Jehoshaphat or Hezekiah, not a wicked evil king like Manasseh or Ahaz, but one who would rule perfectly. 
And he, he prays for the multiple generations of kings. And in, in verse 7, may he be enthroned before you. That there is a throne that the king of Israel was supposed to sit on, but, but that throne was to be before the throne of God. That God is the one who's truly reigning. And yes, the king is supposed to appoint this guard or this soldier or this, this secretary of this. But look, who's, look who is supposed to be doing the appointing here. May he be in, verse 7, may he be enthroned forever before God. Appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. As the king is appointing different generals and secretaries to watch over the different parts of the nation, David is praying that God would appoint two guards to guard the king. Because David knows that the true king is God himself. And it's steadfast love and righteousness. Steadfast love has to do with God's relationship with us, his covenant relationship with us. And faithfulness, that word has to do with God's reliability, that he wants to be in relationship and that he is reliable. And so God's steadfast love and reliability through all the ups and downs of David's offspring being on his throne. God is faithful even when they're in exile in Babylon and returning. They're all longing for this king who is going to reign forever. One more Christmas verse when Gabriel showed up to the Virgin Mary in Luke chapter 1. This is what we're told about Jesus. The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Loved ones, Jesus is not only the rock and the strong tower and the refuge that we can rely on. He's not only the one who has come to dwell among us like dwelling in a tent. He's not only the one who longs to gather us under his wings like a mother hen with her chicks. Jesus is also the king who is to sit on David's throne. He is the king who's going to truly bring God's steadfast love in relationship and his faithfulness and his reliability. And if David in verse 8 could say, so I will ever sing praises to your name as I perform my vows day after day. David had promised to praise God, to praise him day after day. If David could look forward and worship God because he knew the king was coming, loved ones, surely we can, when our heart is faint, look backward and see that the king has come, that the rock has been put in place that we can flee to that is higher than I, that the tent of God's hospitality has been opened so that we could be welcomed in and sit down to a meal with him. Because those who cry out in prayer will be singing out in praise. It was true for David. But loved ones, we see things much more clearly than David could see. And so if David could cry out in prayer and end up singing out in praise, Lord, how, how much more could we cry out in our prayers, in our desperation, and end up singing in praise as we think about all that Jesus is for us. Jesus is on his throne forever so we can praise him forever. He reigns day after day so that we can praise him day after day.